All right. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. This morning, I want to start off by telling you a story. I think this is sermon time, right? There's nothing else going on. I want to start off by telling you a story because I wasn't here last week. Um, I was out of town and I was preaching to a group of people, a group of Penn State University students outside of State College, Pennsylvania. We were at a retreat center and man, there was no internet, there was no uh, cell phone service, nothing. And on the way there, uh, I was driving through central Pennsylvania, very like rural area, dirt roads, stuff like that. And I have a small car. My, my car that I drive is a Honda Fit. And so uh, I was driving through central Pennsylvania. It kind of fits like light, you know, like it, I could pick it up if I needed to. And I'm driving through central Pennsylvania, and there's a cop behind me, a police officer behind me. And I don't know why, but I still get nervous, you know, just you never know. And I found that cops outside of Philadelphia have nothing better to do than, like, get you for everything. And so I just, like, I knew exactly when I was 100 yards before I was turning, hitting the signal, all that stuff, you know. Uh, so I turn off a main road onto a dirt road. Did you know some roads are made of dirt? Yeah, you got to go west of here to find that. I turn onto this dirt road, and the police officer turns onto the road behind me, and then I'm like, oh, no. So I'm going the speed limit down a dirt road in central Pennsylvania with no cell phone reception, no nothing. It's one of those dark foresty roads, it's canopy of trees and stuff like that, you know. So I'm going through the road, and it's central Pennsylvania, so what should happen but an animal crosses in front of me, and this is, I know it sounds ironic because now it's November, it was a turkey. <laughs> this turkey strutted right out in front of me like, like I wasn't in his turf or something. And uh, so I slam on the brakes. Now, like I said, my car is light, so I'm sliding. It's a dirt road. I drive a small car. So I'm sliding, and this, you know, turkeys don't really fly. They kind of hop a little bit when they have to. So this little guy pops up about two feet off the ground. He's trying to get out of the way, but he didn't. And I, he hit the, like, uh, the front of my... Um, hood, hood of my car, rolled up it. As he was rolling, it happened in slow motion. He looked at me like, <laughs> just kidding, but rolls up the hood of the car, up the windshield, and poof, behind me, and guess where he landed? Directly into the windshield of the police car, shattered, totally shattered the windshield. So at this point, you know, I've already, hit, I've already slammed on the brakes and slid to a stop. The police car behind me has also stopped. I see this whole thing happen in my rearview mirror, and he flips his lights on. And I, you know, I'm obviously, I don't know what to do, but I just know I'm going to stay in the car. So he gets out. He got out pretty quick. He's walking around the car, checking all the damage of the car. Then he gets back in his car, brings out his little book, and he comes up, and I have my window down, and I don't know what, to, I'm like, are you okay? And he says he's okay, and then I don't know what to say, so I'm like, what seems to be the problem, officer? <laughs> and he said, I'm going to have to write you a ticket. And I was like, 
for what, may I ask, officer? For what are you writing a ticket? And he said, well, I'm going to have to give you a ticket for flipping me the bird. <laughs> okay, that's not a real story. That whole thing was made up. <laughs> I don't get to tell that story enough. Um, I've been telling it for 20 years, but okay. That story was fake, but truly, I was uh, with a group of state college, Penn State students last weekend at a retreat, and there were about 40 or 50 students from Penn State University. And it was really interesting getting to talk with them because uh, it was so distinct, their worldview. I mean, these are like 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, most of whom grew up, went through the public uh, school system, go to a state college, and so their worldview, you could hear it in the way that they talked, their worldview was what we would call naturalistic, meaning they saw things and heard things and thought about things in terms of what is natural. What can I see with my eyes, hear with my ears, taste with my tongue, smell with my nose, and feel with my hands? What can I perceive through my five senses? So we're talking like, these were engineering students that, that are big into like math and they're gonna build bridges. We had a kid in the room who already had a job at NASA when he graduated. And uh, I mean, it was just like science and math and uh, like I said, naturalistic worldview. And so here I am preaching the Bible to a group of students. They're Christians, by the way. I mean, they're Christians, but I found not every Christian thinks about the world through this lens of that there is also a spiritual perspective to the world. The natural world, of course, exists. It's real. I mean, you're, the chair you're sitting in is real. It's not an illusion. We're not the dream of some giant turtle floating in the universe. I mean, this is real. This is, the physical world is a real world. When we go to heaven, we're going to have bodies. You know, you're not going to turn into a ghost or an angel. We're going to have bodies. There's going to be, you're going to touch things in heaven, okay? So I want you to understand the physical world is a real world. It's just not all that there is. There is also a spiritual reality, a spiritual world. You yourself are a microcosm of the natural and the spiritual because you have a physical body as well as a spirit. And those two things interact with each other and they interplay with one another, which is why in the middle of worship or reading your Bible or prayer, the, the, your spirit interacting with the Holy Spirit actually has an exchange with your body. Where in the middle of worship, your mouth opens and you use your vocal cords in your mouth to sing or speak praises to God, or maybe you raise your hands. That's, the, that's a spiritual reality interacting with a natural reality. Does that make sense? And the Bible is really just a big, long story of the spiritual realm having consequences in the natural realm, okay? And I want to make sure that we understand that there's more to life than what you see, hear, taste, touch, and feel, but there actually is a spiritual world that is very real. It's so real, I hope that I don't you know, spook it or frighten anyone, but there are spirits in this room right now, I'm sure. Either angels or demons, hopefully more angels than demons, you know, hopefully. I don't, we don't have any Patriots fans in this service, but we did in the first service, so. Uh, 
There, when you walk through your neighborhood, listen, there's spirits present. Angels and demons. In your home, probably. In our church. At work. There's more going on than what you can just see with your eyes. There's a spiritual reality that's present. And that spiritual reality interacts with your natural reality. There is actually a cause and effect relationship between the spiritual and the natural that every Christian needs to be able to wrap their head around, that there are spiritual causes for natural events. I found that as we mature, just as human beings, let alone as Christians, we have to understand the cause and effect relationships in our lives. You know, if you're constantly not able to make ends meet and pay bills, what is the cause of that? Is it a mystery every month, or is there a cause that leads to that? You know, and so identifying that cause is going to help you get a better effect. I took my kids yesterday. All three of them had to get flu shots. They understood cause and effect. A needle's about to go into my arm. It's going to hurt. The result is going to be tears, which thankfully two of the three did not cry. Uh, I almost cried. So... <laughs> Cause and effect is an important thing for us to understand. As Christians with a biblical worldview, our view of cause and effect has to include the spiritual world as well. There are things that happen that we don't see that cause results that we do see. Okay, So Acts 19, which is what we've been in the last two or three weeks, is really just one big cause and effect story. I mean, John Eric preached uh, from Acts 19 last week. I was in Acts 19 the week before that. Today we're going to finish Acts 19. Next week we'll get into the book of Ephesians. But it's a lot of cause and effect. So I want to read the uh, passage that we're going to look at today, but I want you to be thinking of cause and effect while we do this, okay? We're going to start with the effect. We'll come back to the cause in a moment. This is Acts 19. Uh, it's the, uh, we're going to read the end of the chapter. About that time... There occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Okay, the way is how they referred to Christians at this point in Ephesus. The city of Antioch was the first place where Christians were called Christians. But in Ephesus at this point, they were called the way because there was no True Vine Church community or First Baptist or Tenth Presbyterian or anything like that. It was just every Christian was lumped in as the way, because Jesus identified himself as the way, the truth, and the light. And so they referred to the Christians as the way because Jesus said he is the exclusive way to God, but also they called them the way because of the way that they lived. They lived differently than everyone else. In a culture where everyone went to the temple and offered sacrifices to the gods, Christians and Jews did not. They lived a different way. And for us, we ought to live differently. We ought to not be so comfortable in the world that there's no way to distinguish a Christian from a person that's not a Christian. You know, like, we shouldn't fit in so seamlessly that there's no way of telling by the actions and the behaviors of a person whether they're a Christian or not. So there's this disturbance about the way, referring to the, the church is what they're referring to, the followers of Jesus in the city of Ephesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, and he said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. 
You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. So here's what's going on. They're in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is the home of the temple of a god, goddess, named Artemis. Now, in Asia, which is where they were, she was called Artemis. In Greece, she was called Diana. It's the same god that goes by different names depending on what continent you're on. Artemis and Diana are the same god. God of fertility, god of war. Um, and so Artemis was where her temple was. It was actually considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Big deal. And they were very, very proud that their uh, hometown was the home of Artemis' temple. What's happening is Paul is so effective in ministry, he's leading so many people to Jesus that they're not buying the little silver idols that they used to sell. It's actually hurting the uh, idol economy. People are like, we're going out of business because no one's buying our idols anymore. So many people are turning to Jesus that they're not doing that, which I think it should indicate to us that when a person turns to Jesus, it is a whole life conversion. We don't bring our idols with us and just try to incorporate Jesus into our idolatry. They, we read last week that they burned all of their little books and scrolls that they practiced magic and the occult with. Now they're not buying idols anymore. I mean, this is a significant thing that's going on. So really quick, these idols looked a little bit like this. These are actually made of bronze, but you know, close enough for an illustration. These would have been about this big. They would have probably fit in a pocket or something like that. We would, we would treat them almost like we treat um, good luck charms. Something that you carry around in your pocket to bring you comfort. Something that you think that you derive spiritual power from. Something that you think connects you to that God like a point of connection, a point of contact. Um, and so this is what they looked like, and they were made of silver, and because people weren't using them anymore, it was hurting the silver trade. So here's what happens. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. So they're actually afraid that they're going to get a bad reputation and that people are going to stop worshiping Artemis and she's going to be, it says, dethroned. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So, they want to gather up the Christians that are causing this problem. They can't find Paul, but they find his two buddies, Gaius and Aristarchus, which, you know, Dan and Rebecca, if the sixth kid comes along, let me just recommend Aristarchus as a name, all right? So they grab Gaius and Aristarchus. They want, to, they want to get to the bottom of this and essentially say, stop drawing people away from the goddess Artemis and to Jesus. So Really quick, just so you can orient yourself here. This is a map I showed you a few weeks ago. This is the theater where they all gather. This is where the Temple of Artemis was. Um, this picture right here, this is modern day. So the theater still exists. It seats about 25,000 people. That's a lot, especially you're thinking over 2,000 years ago. 25,000 people, no amplification, no microphones, no speakers. That's a lot of people. So. This, we don't know how full the theater gets, but picture that theater full of people, 
And they're kind of an angry mob at this point. You know what Benjamin Franklin said about mobs? They have a lot of heads, but not a lot of brains, which we kind of see in this passage. When Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Paul wanted to get in the mix of this. I don't know if Paul sees this as an opportunity to preach the gospel. We have 25 people here, 25,000 people here who want to, they want to have a conversation about other gods. I want in on this. And Paul was not afraid to lose his life. So Paul might have wanted to get in, but the disciples said, you're better alive than dead. We don't want you going in. Also, some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent him, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So Asiarchs would have been wealthy benefactors who were, they would just pay people to go preach and teach. It'd be like a wealthy person that says, I'll pay your light bill this month so that you can go spread your philosophy. The Asiarchs are probably not Christians. They were just people that liked wisdom and philosophy, and so in order to make sure that was part of the culture, they would pay uh, part of someone's salary. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Remember what I said, Ben Franklin said, there are a lot of heads but not a lot of brains. They don't even know why they're there. They just followed the crowd in, and they're all worked up and hyped up. Some of the crowd concluded that it was Alexander... Since the Jewish people had put him forward and having motion with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jewish person, a single outcry arose from them all. As they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, what's up with Alexander? Alexander was probably not a Christian. He was Jewish. But you know, Jewish people like Christians were saying, we don't worship idols. And they'd been saying that for so long that they thought, They're confused about why they're there. I bet it's Alexander. He's been telling us this is a problem for... So Alexander actually says says he's trying to make a defense. Like, this is not us this time. (laughs) Don't blame us. But they don't even let him talk. They just shout him down by saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk, that's essentially the mayor, the town clerk says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all? who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. So they had a meteorite. They didn't call it a meteorite, but a meteorite fell down in Ephesus thousands of years ago, and they believed it was a gift from Artemis. So that's what that's referring to. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. So they essentially conclude, listen, we can't just have a riot and kill these guys. If you have an issue, take it to the courts. Okay? So, I want to focus on verse 26, because verse 26 to me is the turning point where we move from cause to effect. Verse 26, since it was like 20 minutes ago when I read this, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Paul's ministry is so effective that he's disrupting the entire community. It actually has an impact on the economy has an impact on other houses of worship. 
It causes a riot. I mean, this is not a small thing. It's, it's actually a spiritual renewal that leads to a social change, which is our definition of revival. So there's essentially a revival going on in Ephesus. It's so widespread that it's changing the way people do business. Now, I want to talk about what is it that Paul did that got this response? This is the effect. What is the cause? What got him to this point? I mean, how is it that he's so effective in ministry that large numbers of people are leaving the worship of Artemis and Diana and coming to the worship of Jesus? Of Jesus. What did he do? What was the cause that led to this story to take place? Well, this should be familiar to you because we've been preaching on these causes the last two weeks. John Eric hit, it, uh, hit three of them last week, and I hit two or three of them the week before. If you just look at Acts 19, if you have a Bible, I'm just going to highlight a few things really quick. But this is the same chapter. Okay, We're just looking at the passages we've preached on the last two weeks. In Acts 19, in verse 6, Paul in Ephesus, comes across some disciples. In verse 6 it says, When Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Here we have this group of a dozen men who were disciples. They knew the baptism of John, but they had not been filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is the first thing Paul does. He empowers the church into the deeper life in the Holy Spirit. When he finds followers, when he finds disciples, he leads them into a deeper encounter with God. And in that way, he is strengthening the congregation, strengthening the church in Ephesus. But he doesn't stop with the Christians. In verse 8, it says he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So not only does Paul go and find the disciples and lead them into deeper walk in the Holy Spirit, now he goes to probably Jewish cynics and critics who were not following Jesus, and it says he reasons with them. He probably was doing what we would call today apologetics, which is a rational defense and explanation of the faith. So he's like, this prophecy here is referring to Jesus. This prophecy here is referring to Jesus. And he's going through systematically and meticulously so that the Jewish people are now being persuaded, and he's using reason. So he leads the church into a deeper encounter with God. He leads critics and cynics into an apologetic exercise so that they can be convinced of Jesus. And verse 11, and John Eric started here last week, says God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And then what is the miracle? In this case, it's that his sweat rags were being sent to sick people and they were either getting healed or having demons leave them. Now talk about an extraordinary miracle. That's not an ordinary miracle. That's an extraordinary miracle. And so uh, he's, he's performing miracles. In verse 15, we see the seven sons of Sceva, which is a failed deliverance attempt. If you remember the story from last week, um, there were these seven men who are not followers of Jesus. They were Jewish exorcists who were casting demons out of people. But they were probably only doing it by replacing the low demons with a high-ranking demon. Making, actually making people worse off. They said, they tried, they tried a formula they had heard somewhere, come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They treated Jesus like an abracadabra. Open sesame, like a, like a magic word. Here's why it didn't work. If you don't have intimacy with Jesus, you don't have authority with Jesus. And so they didn't have any intimacy with Jesus. That's why they said Jesus whom 
Paul preaches, not Jesus who we follow or Jesus who has saved us or Jesus who is king of the universe. Jesus who Paul preaches, it's worked for Paul. And if you know the story, this one demonized man beats them and they all get exposed. Literally. He beats them, rips their clothes off, and they run out naked. And not only are they literally exposed, but they're exposed that their ministry is not really a ministry. And so we see here that if, if the reputation is Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, but who are you? Paul is now, he's leading them in deliverance ministry. He's not only preaching to the Christians and preaching to the Jews and doing miracles, he's actually casting demons out of people. And the last thing that Paul does is that he confronts the occult by telling them, hey, magic is not a viable option for Christians. And they respond so strongly that they burn all of their books that have to do with magic. And that's in verse 19. It says, many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted out the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. This is what Paul does. This is the cause to today's effect. Take the church deep. Reason with skeptics and cynics, do miracles, cast out demons, and confront false religion and false spirituality. That's a pretty thorough approach, isn't it? It's a lot different from um, get a cool logo and a social media presence, right? It's a lot different than um, have the coolest service in town. And so those causes result in this effect. So many people have turned to Jesus that it's shaking up the whole city. It's, it says in the first verse, it disturbs, it disrupts the entire city. That's the effect. Now, Paul persuaded and turned a great number away from Artemis and to Jesus. Uh, and it actually had an effect on the economy to the point where the silversmiths, you know, workers' union had to have a meeting and deal with Paul and his associates, right? A.B. Simpson says this, wherever the gospel is, uh, sorry, a gospel that goes down to the heart of Wall Street and turns business upside down must have some power in it. The gospel has implications for every aspect of society. The gospel has implications for families, education, law enforcement, but also business. The gospel has implications for the economy. Now, sometimes people forget about the personal salvation element of the gospel, and they run straight to the systems of our culture. That's a problem, because you're not going to touch the systems if you forego the personal response to Jesus that people need to have in order to be saved. But when enough people get saved, you start to see things change in the culture and in the economy. I mean, wouldn't you love to see certain things in our economy change because so many people have come to Jesus? So, for instance, wouldn't you like to see the sex industry just fall flat because so many people have come to Jesus? Now, I know that we can try to pass a law and we can boycott and we can have a campaign for this and a campaign for that. But wouldn't, I mean, I would love to see prostitution end because of two things. The prostitutes get saved, saved, and no longer participate in that. And I know that there's all sorts of things that they need to do to get like other viable means of employment, and I understand that. 
But I would also love to see that the people that visit the prostitutes begin to find fulfillment in godly means and stop visiting them. I mean, no, I mean, no city council person's ever been able to figure that out here. Wouldn't it be better if so many people got saved that it changed? Wouldn't it be nice if like uh, Club Risque and all these other places shut down, not because we had a zoning violation or community meeting, but because the owner gave his life to Jesus and shut it down? Or so many people got saved in the area that they stopped visiting it. and it just Because that's what's about to happen here. It's not because they passed a law. It's not because of a politician or any other thing. It's because so many people gave their lives to Jesus, it just disrupted the whole thing. I would love to see that. I, would, I mean, I can't imagine what would happen in the United States if, like, the pornography industry and the drug trade and sex trafficking and things like that dried up simply because so many people found Jesus. There's no market for it anymore. I would love to see that. So, and that's the only way it's going to be lasting anyway, is if people truly have life change and transformation and there's no market for these things anymore. And there was no market anymore for these silver idols. So in Ephesus, commerce and religion were intertwined. Let me show you this uh, illustration of the temple again. The temple to them, it's out here on the outskirts of city, the city, it's in the suburbs, of course. The temple to them was more than just a place of worship. The temple to them was almost like what we would call a mini-mall. Because the temple was where a lot of money was exchanged. Remember, Jesus had to drive people out of the temple for exchanging money. So same thing was going on here in the Temple of Artemis. There's, it's, it's essentially a bank. It's also a restaurant. In 1 Corinthians 8, well, here's why it's a restaurant. They're doing these sacrifices all day, right? They've got to do something with all this meat. So they decide it'll be a restaurant. It's a bank, it's a restaurant, it's a place of worship. It's your one-stop shop for all things Artemis-related. Okay, it's the Artemis Walmart. So they can get their food, they can, get, they can chain, break a 20, you know, get a couple Lucy's, play the lotto, get home for the Eagles game, right? <laughs> I spend too much of my time at Wawa, because that all happens there. Um, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul actually says, when you are dining in an idol's temple, and he gives them instruction, because Paul anticipates, yeah, you're going to eat in an, idol in an idol's temple at some point, which is crazy, because you would think Paul would say, don't ever do that. But he actually says, when you do it, uh, have a clean conscience about, conscience about it. it. It's part of their culture. Uh, he's not saying you, you, they'll never go there. He's saying when you do it, uh, you know that that meat is sacrificed to a false god. There's no real god behind that meat. It's sacrificed to a demon. But then he says this, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's in 1 Corinthians 8. It's all in there. He says, if someone who knows you're a Christian sees you eating that, and in their mind, they think it must be okay for Christians to worship Artemis, then don't do it. If they think that you eating that food validates the worship of that God, stop. Because you're a stumbling block. But if they don't come to that conclusion or see that happening, your conscience can be clear about this. Does that make sense? Okay, so the expectation, though, is that 
Christians are probably going to be eating there, but not participating in the worship. If they need money, they're going to probably have to go there. So it's a very gray life for them. They didn't live in a predominantly Christian culture that many of us have enjoyed, where you can go to the bank and have it not be a religious experience, where you can go to the grocery store and not have it be a religious experience. For them, it was all religious. Everything, every t- bit of life was touched by this uh, temple cult. So, uh, wherever the gospel's preached in power, it'll be opposed by people who make money from superstition and sin. And that's essentially what's going on here with Artemis. It's superstition. It's the occult. Paul confronts it. He confronts it with uh, the false exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva. He confronts it with the magic that they practice in Ephesus. He confronts it with uh, this, these idols for Artemis. I mean... If you've picked up by now the last month, Artemis is a very religious place. Uh, I should say Ephesus is a very religious place. It's not secular. It's very religious. It's just not biblical, and it's not Christ-centered. And so you should know, religious is not the same thing as spiritual, and spiritual is not the same thing as Christian. What distinguishes Christianity from everything else is the word of God, and the centrality of Jesus. If you find yourself getting wrapped up in some sort of spirituality that contradicts the Bible and does not place Jesus as exclusively in the center, you've drifted into some other false religion. And sometimes we call that the occult. And Paul confronts the occult, and uh, he confronts the occult in a way that's effective. In every kingdom advances at the expense of another kingdom. So when God's kingdom takes ground, it's taking that ground from Satan's kingdom. Every kingdom advances at the expense of another kingdom. There's no neutral ground anymore. It's either owned by Jesus or Satan. And so every time the kingdom of God moves forward, it's got to be taking back ground from the kingdom of darkness. Uh, In any given community, there's a direct correlation between the presence of the occult and the power in the church. I'm mostly speaking from experience here, but I think the Bible supports this. The more occult activity there is in a community, the weaker the churches tend to be. But the stronger the churches get, the more the occult activity goes down. There's a correlation there. So... If a church finds itself in a community where there's a lot of occult activity, the church needs to connect to a power source, and that power source is the Holy Spirit. And they need to take that seriously. Uh, In fact, in the early days, they might have to make this one of their primary focuses is spiritual warfare. Uh, It's, you know, doesn't mean it's the only thing you ever do, doesn't mean it's what you'll do exclusively for the rest of your ministry, but there's going to probably have to be a season where this is high up on the agenda of things to take seriously. is spiritual warfare. How do we change the atmosphere in a region? Because that's essentially what's happening here. Remember how they call Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians? They seem almost proud, like, ah, she's in our town. And, it's, and, and the, she's referred to as, like, you know, if Ephesus and almost all of Asia worship her. It's this regional, territorial, spiritual climate. And Paul's confronting it, and he's having great success in confronting it. This is not just for missionaries who go off to 
faraway places and they come back with incredible stories and you think, oh, if a missionary said it, it must be true. But if your brother in Christ who lives down the street said it, you're like, he's crazy. I mean, I grew up hearing fantastic stories from missionaries who would tell things, miracles and casting out demons and all sorts of stuff. And we all said, that's what happens on the mission field. But when someone from the next town over said it happened in their town, we were like, I doubt it. Listen, this is not just for missionaries. This is for us. If it can happen there, it can happen here. I don't know if you think America is this like perfectly Christian, evangelized place, but we have some lostness of our own to deal with. We have some sin of our own to, wrestle, to confront and wrestle with and get freedom from. So, uh, you know, some people actually send missionaries here. We're a mission field. We need the help. So, this was a spiritual renewal that led to social change. They took this seriously. Paul burned occult books. He ran idolaters out of business. You know what we do sometimes? We play around with this stuff. Paul, Paul saw this stuff and he said, burn it, toss it, repent, get away from it. So, you know, I don't know that we always act like that. I think sometimes we're like, ah, well, this is a family heirloom or this is a tradition. And so we keep these like occult things in our lives. Like we sell Ouija boards in the toy aisle, you know, we keep engaging in the occult without totally getting rid of it and confronting it. That behavior would not fit in this passage. They are throwing it out even though it costs them money. And some of them don't want to lose the money, and that's why this riot takes place. Now, I love Paul's ministry here. The strength of Paul's ministry is this one thing. This is what made Paul's ministry so powerful. is because it was the same ministry that Jesus performed. What did Jesus do? Preached and taught, healed the sick, performed miracles, cast out demons, confronted false worship. I mean, this is, the, this is why it worked for Paul, because it's Jesus' model. So if it's Jesus' model, and Paul copied that, what should be our model? The same, right? I mean, we've, we, we nowadays find so many other ways to try to have an impact. And they don't get this kind of result. I mean, I'm not hearing any stories about major cities in America turning to God in mass. Because we're, we're, we're trying to do it like through billboards and other things. And, and I'm not against those if that's like your secondary plan after showing people the power of God. But you're not going to do it through slick uh, marketing campaigns. You have to lead people into an encounter with the power of God because they're already encountering spiritual power. Just dark power. So uh, the strength of Paul's ministry was that it was the same as Christ's ministry. I want to close with a story and then lead us in communion. In 2000, my wife and I both moved to a town called Nyack, New York so that we could attend college. And Nyack was, and still is, just like Ephesus, super spiritual, super religious, but not Christ-centered. 
huge population of Wicca and witches. Um, in fact, there was a cafe downtown in Nyack called the Coven Cafe. Coven is a place where people that practice witchcraft get together. So this was literally a coffee shop for witches. And they would get together and they'd do tarot card readings and psychic readings and they would talk about spells and stuff like that. And you know, the seven or eight times I went there, I didn't like it. Just kidding, I never went. I know you're all like, what? It was purple on the outside. I mean, it was made to look like the most cartoonish place that you would find a witch with a cauldron of witch's brew. And, you know, it was made to look like that, but they were actually practicing witchcraft. And we knew it was bad, but of course, you know, we're all college students. We're kind of outsiders. We didn't feel like it was our place to um, try to take the place of the church in the local community. And in 2001, this crazy, I mean crazy in the most complimentary way possible, crazy, spirit-filled Christian man who was from England, and his British accent kind of calmed down the craziness, actually. It made it sound like, he can't be that crazy. He's got that accent. But he was an aggressive, bold, spirit-filled Christian. He was also an artist and a woodworker. And he bought the art studio directly across the street from the Coven Cafe. And he would get up every morning and he would have his devotions. He had this window that looked right down on the cafe. And he would pray every day that God would remove that place from the community. So in 2001, I remember being on campus. We were on a hill. We could see down into the city. I remember hearing fire trucks running, rushing down into this, into this town of Nyack. <clears throat> I remember smoke coming up out of the city, and that happened from time to time if there, were, there was a house fire or something like that. So we found out later that day what happened. An 18-wheeler semi-truck, which had no business going down there, lost its brakes and went straight into the cafe, and thank God it was closed, so there was no one there, and, the, and no one was hurt, you know, no one was injured. Hit the building, hit no other building, hit no cars, wow. went straight into that building, hit no people, burst the building into flames, it burned down, and the owner decided not to reopen. She took her insurance money and moved out of town, and that was the end of the Coven Cafe. Now that sounds like some Ephesus stuff to me. Now, I have to give one little caveat, because I know how crazy some of you are. Okay, the application from this story is not, go pray for trucks to run into places that you don't like. Okay, I know some of you are going to go, like, start cutting brake lines and things like, please don't do that. That is not the takeaway from this passage, or this story that I just shared. Here's the takeaway from that story. The spiritual world uh, has an effect on the natural world. Okay? What, he, what this man accomplished through prayer had a, a, an actual natural result on earth. And your prayers also can have those types of results. And so I know that we can go find places in the community and we can go stand outside of the picket sign and we can you know, call a city councilman, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of that. <clears throat> but if we do that and never pray, we're not going to get anywhere. We need to change some things in the spiritual world 
and see the impact in the natural world because the two do interface with each other and they do interplay with each other. So, you know, you can take this principle to work. If your atmosphere, if the atmosphere in your workplace is very dark and heavy and not Christ honoring, you can change that through things like worship, prayer, being devoted to Jesus. You can change it in your home. You can change it in your neighborhood. I mean, the, the spirit, if you want lasting change, it's going to have to be a spiritual change first that has a natural result. So, um, all of that is going to have to be Christ-centered. You're not going to do it with your own ma uh, manufactured strength. Jesus' death and resurrection was like an atomic bomb in the universe. That, that just everything before it was building up to it, everything after it has been affected by it. And we need to remember Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus actually gave the disciples communion as a means of regularly reminding them of his death and resurrection. So this morning we're going to observe communion. I'm going to ask John McManus to come join me up front. John's one of our elders.